Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today I'm joined by Gary Taub, so I should say rejoined because I was I had the privilege of interviewing Gary uh, to kick off the Diet Doctor Podcast, episode number one. And now he, he, here he is back for another episode. Thank goodness uh, we didn't scare him off the first time that he was willing to come back for another episode. Um, and it's such a pleasure to interview him because, I mean, let's face it, if, if you have any knowledge of low-carb, it likely has been traced back to Gary Tobbs in some way. You know, that you can think of the modern revolution of low carb, started with Dr. Atkins and then sort of fizzled out and then was reignited uh, by Gary Tobbs with this 2002 article in the New York Times Magazine, um, followed by his, his book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, uh, and then other um, very important books as well. Um, why We Get Fat, The Case Against Sugar, and now he's back with another book, The Case for Keto. And we discuss about his his sort of rationale, why he wrote this, who he wrote this for. And you can see it's sort of a, it's a very personal journey, but at the same time, he really tries to to paint the picture of who this book is for. And he interviewed hundred uh, over 100 physicians and clinicians about this book um, to get their experience. He knows the literature, but he sees it from an outsider's perspective because he's not a scientist. He's not a physician. And some people are going to criticize him for that. And some people are going to recognize that that's a strength of his because he's not um, sort of entrenched in, in the dogma and the status quo. And he doesn't sort of have a dog in the fight, so to speak, because of the way he's been practicing or doing his research. Instead, he's trying to uh, approach it with his inquisitive mind. And he asks great questions and he brings up the point that um, probably within uh, the traditional medical world, we're not asking enough questions. And that's part of the problem. But we get into a lot of the concept of you know calories versus carbohydrates and insulin, and not just what it means from a science perspective, but what it means from a personal perspective, from a, a hormonal perspective, from a hunger perspective, from a sustainability perspective. And, and we talk about um, you know how people can walk away with information that could help them. And that's really what this book is about. You'll see how he describes um, his book. He wants this to be a book that you share with your family members, that you share with your physician to make the case for keto. Maybe not for everybody. But to, for the right person, uh, there's a case to be made. So, uh, as always, you know Gary Tubbs, he, he's got great stories, great anecdotes, and a wonderful perspective. So, I hope you enjoy this interview with Gary Tubbs. All right, sorry for the interruption, but just a quick break. I just wanted to tell you about the new meal planner we have at Diet Doctor for all Diet Doctor members. You now have access to our personalized meal planner. So we had a pretty good meal planner before. I got to be honest. I mean, we have a thousand recipes, um, and it could come up with. Uh, with a great set of meal plans and shopping lists for you. But now we've made it even better by personalizing it. So just a couple simple questions about who you are, your age, uh, your height, what your weight loss goals are, if you have any medical conditions, just a couple questions to better understand who you are. Then we can even better formulate the diet that's right for you, pulling from our best recipes that are going to fit the profile that's going to impact you uh, the most. So uh, if you're already a Diet Doctor member, make sure you check out our personalized meal planner. And if you're not, this is a great opportunity to sign up to become a Diet Doctor member so you have access to our personalized meal planner with the shopping lists and, of course, all the other benefits you get from being a Diet Doctor member. And the first 30 days are free, so you really have nothing to lose. It's definitely worth checking out. So go to dietdoctor.com to learn more. All right, now back to the interview. Gary Tobbs, welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. It's great to have you back again. Okay, Brett. Thank you for having me. 
It's so great to have you back. I mean, you helped us kick off the Diet Doctor podcast in episode number one, and now you're back for another episode. And I'm excited because you just now have the release of your new book, The Case for Keto. So I definitely want to get into the the details of this book. But before, just give us sort of a little background of on what you were hoping to accomplish with this book, who's it for, and then we'll dig a little bit deeper into the specifics. I'm writing it for those of us who are on that spectrum from overweight to obesity, from you know metabolic syndrome, pre-diabetes to diabetes. Like we are the people who fatten easily, who can't control our blood sugar, and for whom the conventional wisdom doesn't work, right? Because if the conventional wisdom worked, we wouldn't be here, right? And this is so, and by the way, the lean and healthy of the world, I'm not counting them out, is a potential readers, I just figure by the time they become like us, which many of them will over time, then they can decide that they have to do something about it and they can go on this sort of uh, down the rabbit hole where we've all gone to learn what the right thing is. So, um, And then over the course of the past five to eight years, mostly since my book, Why We Get Fat, the world has changed dramatically. So uh, when I did Why We Get Fat, for instance, I interviewed a uh, half dozen physicians who were prescribing low-carb, high-fat diets. And these were the ones I knew out there who were doing it, who had bought into it, who had clinical experience. And there were like six of them that I knew, you know. Uh, Just six at that time. Mikey, yeah. Derek Westman, uh, David Ludwig, uh, a few others. And even David Ludwig was more less low carb high fat and more just restricted carbs so now by my estimate there's a few tens of thousands at least worldwide okay and now there are organizations like like dietdoctor.com that have international reach and diabetes.co.uk and ditch the carbs and um so i wanted to find out i've always been obsessed with the problem without really long-term clinical trials the question is what works and what doesn't Mm -hmm. And I wanted to find out from these physicians what was working for them and when it didn't work, why didn't it work and what the challenges were to the physicians and the challenges were to the patients. And then I also wanted, there was this sort of profound disconnect between what we believe and still what the authorities believe. And this is represented by, you know, the sort of a U.S. News and World Report, for instance, which every year does, they, they have a committee of, 20 or 30 nutritional authorities who decide what the healthiest diets are and invariably low carb high fat ketogenic diets are the least healthy of the 35 to 40 they include every year so we're committed to it they think it's an unhealthy unsustainable lifestyle and i wanted to explain that disconnect and then I wanted to just, I wanted people to understand there's so many misconceptions about diet and health and what it means to eat the low carb, the way diet doctor, for instance, prescribes. And I wanted to address all of those, I, you know, so that's yeah. it. I want to put everything in context. I wanted to write the book that sort of people could read so they would know that the log, the real logic behind what they're doing, you can go to all these sites and they'll say, look, do this, it'll make you healthy. And I wanted to explain why we believe that and, and what the conflicts were 
Yeah, that's one of the things I noticed about the book. It does a really good job of explaining sort of the history. I mean, you're a journalist, you're great at digging up history, but it did a great job of explaining the history of how we think of obesity. And when I say we, I, I say sort of like the medical community and and how it became sort of ingrained, you know, that, that common word ingrained, that it's it's really just a behavioral issue. It's gluttony, it's it's eating too much, and all you have to do is is uh, control yourself better and that will fix everything and sort of how we, how we got to this position. And, and you pointed out very clearly how, if it's a, a thin doctor who, or a thin scientist or mostly a thin doctor who never had trouble with their weight, it just makes sense, right? It works for me. And here we have some science to support it seemingly. So it should work for everybody, but that's, but that's not the case. And you wrote the book in a very sort of personal way. There was a lot of people like us, like we, because you personally were in a position where you found yourself not kind of the, 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 the paradigm from the, the skinny, healthy doctors wasn't working for you. So I guess that kickstarted this journey many years ago for you, didn't it? Well, it actually, it's funny because I got into this um, without any bias whatsoever. I got into it because I was interested in good science and bad science. Yeah. And I had reason to believe that the nutrition science had a considerable amount of bad science. I didn't know what it was. So I spent the 90s, like everyone else, eating low-fat diets and mostly plants and exercising an hour a day and not being able to control my weight. But what I realized doing this is, and a lot of this goes back, oddly enough, to Malcolm Gladwell. So Malcolm Gladwell, one of his first pieces he ever did for The New Yorker in 1998 was um, a... Uh, uh, called the Pima Paradox, and it was about obesity, and the review of the obesity field, very much the same subject that I took on for the New York Times Magazine three years later. Um, but Malcolm didn't have, in those three years, a lot happened, like Eric Westman happened, and David Ludwig happened, and Steve Finney and Jeff Volek happened. And so where I had authorities I could interview who were taking low-carb, high-fat diet seriously and had tested them in clinical trials, Malcolm didn't. Um, so he breaks down, he parses diet books, and he kind of makes fun of the fact that they all have the same structure. And they start with the conversion experience of the physician. Mm -hmm. The doctor says, you know, I was suffering from, I was overweight, or I was obese, or I was suffered from this disease, or that disorder, or I couldn't sleep, or whatever it was, and I tried everything that the conventional wisdom offered and it didn't help so I went down into the basement of the library medical school library and down there I found a tome that held the secret and I tried it <laughs> and it worked for me and it sounds you know like a sales job and that's kind of how Malcolm intended it was to sort of suggest that this is part of the diet book con but what I realized in talking to over 120 physicians first of all they they'd all gone through this you went through it, I went through it. If you're lean and healthy and you're doing what the conventional wisdom recommends, there's nothing to learn. There's no conflict between your experience and hypothesis. So science starts with an observation of this is what I believe, but it's not what I'm seeing. And then from there you generate a hypothesis to explain what you're seeing, and then you test the hypothesis and all of science goes from there. But if you're lean and healthy and you're doing you know, eating in moderation and exercising, and no reason to doubt those as weight loss advice. And so that's what you tell your overweight obese subject to do. And even though even lean and healthy physicians have patients who get heavier with each passing year and more diabetic, they just assume they're not taking their diet advice. 
But then you get to the point where it doesn't work for you. And so if you're actually one of these people, and this is why I keep referring to us, we're the people who can do the experiment ourselves to see if it works. Okay. Right. And you have right. to be willing to do that experiment yourself. Yeah. Being someone who's gaining weight year in, year out regardless. And I don't believe thin people can understand this because it's not within their life experience. So they assume that they stay lean by eating in moderation. Everyone can. They don't know that the world is full of people who, if we try to eat in moderation, we get fatter anyway, or we just get too hungry. Right. And that's so important that we get too hungry to keep it up. And that's a concept that is really, I, I hate to say the word ignored, but sort of has been ignored by guidelines and in, in the common practice that, um, you know, we're, we're giving a diet that probably is going to stimulate hunger in 90% or more of the people who are going to do it, but we expect it to be successful. So you really focus on hunger in this book and you talk a lot about it. Well, there's a misconception there as well, because the community has thought of hunger as something independent of the physiology of the body. So maybe it has, they'll talk about satiety and, um, you know, how quickly or not you digest the foods you consume so fats they're supposed to be satiating when they believe fats are satiating because they're slower to digest than protein or carb the reality is you need a certain amount of energy to run your body and if some of that energy is being trapped in your fat tissue because you're accumulating fat or your fat tissue is trying to accumulate you're not going to have enough energy to fuel your body and that's going to spur hunger so it's sort of this concept of fuel availability in the periphery. I don't go into this a lot of detail, but you can't separate hunger from fat accumulation. It's just right. the, the two are 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 hopefully you know they're 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 two sides of the same phenomena. Um, so that 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 was one of the many misconceptions that's been out there. I mean, for fifty or a hundred years. Right, and this concept that hunger means we need nourishment, that we, we're somehow missing food and nourishment is sort of the general conception. But when we have all the calories and nourishment that we need in our stores, we just can't get to them. There's that disconnect. You know, it's funny. I just saw a paper came out last week, this week, from uh, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Neil Bernard is the last author. It's published in JAMA. It's a vegan diet for weight loss. And so they randomized something like 250 subjects to eating a vegan diet and or just doing nothing. So you either stay in the standard American diet with all its sugary beverages and all its beer and all its crap, or you think and eat healthy and eat a vegan diet. And they report that over the course of 16 weeks, they lose like 12 pounds. And so this is a good thing in their mind. But they also report that they restrict their calories to 1,200 calories a day in order to lose the 1,600 pounds. And we know from the most famous clinical trials ever performed, Ansel Key's famous starvation study, that people can't sustain 1,200 calorie a day diets, that that level of hunger eventually will drive them crazy. They might be able to sustain it for 16 weeks, but they can't sustain it forever. And so you have this disconnect. Again, one of the arguments against the uh, low-carb, high-fat ketogenic diet today, and we should explain why I refer to it as low-carb, high-fat ketogenic, but we'll get back to that, is it's unsustainable. Yeah. 
But a diet that requires you to semi-starve yourself while getting to have the occasional, you know, uh, crackers and ice cream is considered sustainable. And the flip side, what we believe is a diet that doesn't make you hungry, that doesn't make you hungry, but does make you healthy will be sustainable effortlessly, easily because you want to sustain your good health. Any diet that makes you hungry is going to fail. Yeah. And, and I think there is a, that disconnect, like you said, and going back to, to Dr. Keyes's study on the starvation study, you know, a lot of people think about him from, from, um, just a seven country study, but the starvation study and the stories that you told about some of the reactions people had, the, the psychological reactions people had was mind boggling. I mean, I never heard that. I mean, that's worth just reading the book in itself just to, to hear some of those crazy stories. This is the, you know, early years of world war II. They want to. They they know that when when if they win the war in Europe, they're going to be facing major famine areas um, with the liberation of Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe. So they want to do a study to to understand starvation and famine, so they know how to deal with it. And then so Ansel Keys, famous nutritionist, this made him famous at the University of Minnesota, recruits. I think it was 25 or 32 conscientious objectors, young men who are from you know, lean to what they considered overweight back then, which was a lot different than what we consider overweight today. And then they put them on what they described as a sort of uh, the Eastern European diet, but 1,600 calories. So it's basically a little bit of lean meat, green vegetables and starchy vegetables, and very low fat. And it would be considered a very healthy diet today in our sort of low-fat, low-saturated fat-oriented world, and these young men go crazy. To the point that a few of them, they called it, uh, I think the term was starvation psychosis, and one of them tries to cut off his fingers to get off the study, and then he eventually succeeds. One of them gets hospitalized. They thought about food constantly. They dreamt about food at night. One of them took to chewing 40 pieces of chewing gum during the day to make up for his hunger. And it was the survey was a, you know the Minnesota starvation experiment, but starvation was 1,600 calories a day, which is what the conventional wisdom, the NIH, since of the CDC or the American Heart Association, will describe for any for men in a weight loss diet. Women in weight loss diets are often prescribed 1,200, 1,500 calories. So again, it's clearly when they give this advice, the idea is those are obese, we're just supposed to be able to deal with the hunger. Right, as if it exists in a vacuum. You just put the advice out there and people do it and comply with it and there are no other factors to consider, but clearly, clearly there are. And if the people fail, it's clearly because they're not following the advice. And then they yeah. come up with the theory that Nobody follows a dietary advice. So uh, one of the misconceptions I would like to erase from the world forever, and I discuss in this book, is the idea that the diet that works is the diet you'll sustain. So you don't actually define any criteria by which the diet works. Like, does it actually make you healthier or, or you know, improve your lipid profile or reduce your weight significantly or make more energetic or happier or do you sleep better? None of that. So if you can sustain it then that's a good diet. Right. The American, I didn't mention this in the book, but I noticed this recently. I'm, my next, next diabetes, I've been reading all the diabetes literature. The latest uh, lifestyle guidelines from the American Diabetes Association actually recommend that 
physicians with patients with diabetes advise the patients to eat exactly how many carbohydrates as they've always been eating because that way they know they'll take their advice. <laughs> oh, God. That's just... <laughs> and, and we're laughing. Um, I could actually pull it up. I've got it. I had to put it in the book where I mentioned this in my book. In the draft, I have a footnote because I know nobody's going to believe that this is what they really say. And then the footnote quotes it exactly, which is, yeah. you know, the diet that works is the diet that they adhere to. So therefore, tell them to do what they've always been doing and what all their friends are eating. And that way we can have confidence that they'll they not adhere to that diet advice. That's disturbing. Well, and then this gets to one of the other disconnects that you bring up in your book is, is the disconnect between what the obesity textbooks say and what the biochemistry books say. So what is sort of the biochemistry of, of fat gain, and then what do they clinically tell us to do? And I thought that was really good. Uh, I was really good the way you pointed out the difference. So tell us a little bit about, about that difference, because I think it's so important. Okay, so the conventional wisdom, right, is you get, you get fat because you take in more calories and you expend. So you overeat. Uh, a biblical term would be gluttony and sloth. But the, um, and then if you look at the textbooks, the textbooks will tell you that the, the diet that works is a diet that reduces calorie intake. Because these people believe you get the, every diet has a theory attached to it, where implicitly or explicitly, and that theory is about what the cause of the disorder is that the diet's supposed to be fixing. So if you have, uh, you know, any the, the diet that works, the one that you adhere to, that supposedly thinks that you get fat because you eat too many calories and you're going to eat less on this way of eating. Um, so uh, the textbook of obesity, the last. Uh, edition, the only edition I think was published was in 2012, says, you know, the diets work when they reduce caloric intake. Um, if you actually look in endocrinology textbooks or metabolism textbooks or even medical textbooks under, you know, the regulation of uh, fat storage and fat cells, you can go to the index and look up the word adipocyte, which, you know, is a technical term for fat cell or um, fat metabolism is another one that'll tell you that fat cells get fatter when they insulin levels are elevated. So one of the many things hormone insulin does is it tells your fat tissue to take up fat and it inhibits the enzymes that release fat out into the circulation again to be used for fuel. So if you pay attention to what the textbooks say about fat cells, Fat cells get fatter because we secrete too much insulin. Our insulin levels stay elevated too long. The fat cells are exquisitely sensitive to insulin. So even the littlest bit of insulin in your fat cells are being told to hold on to the fat they've accumulated. But the same textbooks will say that obesity is caused by eating too much and completely ignore the sort of biological, endocrinological knowledge about what's happening to the fat cells themselves. And all we've done is say, look, we're, we are the accumulation of all our fat fat cells. So if we're overweight or obese, you know, we have either too many overstuffed fat cells or we've got too overstuffed fat cells. And the way you get the fat out of the fat cells is by lowering insulin, minimizing insulin ideally and the way you do that is by avoiding carb-rich foods and sugars so starches grains and sugars and 
if you do that, we have copious anecdotal evidence and some pretty good clinical trial evidence that it solves the problem. It certainly makes sense. Now, but I guess you could say part of the problem is is how good ketogenic diets are at reducing appetite and having people naturally reduce their calories, which then leads sort of some of the um, the detractors to say, well, it's only because you reduce your calories that it's working because it's 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 hard to find a study, at least in sort of free living people where you don't purposely restrict or mandate their calories. It's hard to find a study where someone who starts a ketogenic diet doesn't reduce their calories naturally. So it's almost like- Yeah, except that we all went through periods. And again, this is where it gets confusing because often when I talk to the critics, they'll say, well, this is all you've got is anecdotes, that it works better than other diets. So on one level, and again, there are a lot of issues to unpack just with a sentence like that, but um, not everyone eats less when they go on these diets. We all know what it was like to try and lose weight the conventional way. I mean, I would do it every six months through my 20s. I was a football player in college. Football, I was a defensive lineman, so I was not very good, but I was the kind of guy (laughs) who got heavier when he got older, and my playing weight was about 238 pounds, which was the heaviest I could get when I was 21 years old. And then when football ended, I dropped down to 210 by basically eating less and eating a lot less crap, drinking Diet Cokes instead of Coke, stuff like that. Um, And then you start gaining weight, two pounds a year. And I would, you know, every few once a year, I would go on a diet to try and bring, you remember what it was like, the small portions of food you ate, the, the, you know, palm-sized portion of tuna fish on a lettuce cup that would be your my lunch. At, um, I once got accused, actually, a woman in a cafe in a midtown in New York while I was working got mad at me because I had finished my my ice cream scoop worth of uh, tuna fish, and I was she was sitting at a table next to me, and I was staring at her plate because <laughs> you're so hungry still. Yeah, and then you compare this to, and then in between meals, you think about food constantly. Yeah. And then dinner, the same thing. It's just this constant, uh, Steve Finney would call this sort of constant thoughts of eating and food that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on this diet, you have a nice, this way of eating, you have a nice big breakfast, eggs, bacon, you know, if you want five eggs, three pieces of bacon, sausage, and then it's true, you don't eat a snack. So you lose those calories and you might not have the Coca-Cola you might otherwise have in the middle of the day or the sugar in the coffee you might otherwise have. But then you get to lunch and you have a nice big lunch, half a roast chicken with salad or, you know, when I first tried this as an experiment, I would have a big steak for lunch because there was a restaurant nearby, an Argentine steakhouse where I could get cheap cuts of meat. Um, And then you go to dinner and the same thing happens. So you're missing out on the snacks because you're not hungry for reasons we pretty much understand. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're having large portions of food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There's no sense. So it is possible that you actually do restrict calories. But when you look at the studies closely, most of them don't talk about how they measured caloric consumption. So they kind of assume that if somebody lost weight, because they, they're programmed to think in terms of energy balance, if someone lost weight, often what they'll do is kind of assume that somebody lost weight, they must have eaten less. So you get, mm-hmm. I believe people have to eat less to lose weight. 
It's not. It's against the laws of thermodynamics, which is nonsense, but they don't understand that. Um, and since I believe you have to eat less to lose weight and my subjects lost weight, therefore they must have eaten less. And this confirms my belief that you have to eat less to lose weight. It's complete. The, the whole idea of energy balance has circular logic built into it all along the way. So, and then uh, again, in simple language, I'm trying to explain that to people here. Right. Right. And I think, I think that does make it challenging um, because we get into these camps of calories versus carbohydrate insulin. And, and when you sort of, when people dig into their camp, it makes them so open to just confirmation bias and sort of like you're saying the circular logic, and it makes it much harder to see that disconnect. Like you pointed out about the biochemistry of getting fat versus sort of the recommendations for getting thin. But this is, you know what I mean about even, um, how people interpret the studies to confirm their um, prejudices or where they stop. You know, I said these people have no curiosity about the implications. So, and when I was, you know, when uh, my not-for-profit, NUSI, the Nutrition Science Initiative, was viable and we were having quarterly meetings with these leading obesity researchers, and they would say, you know, and again, well, ketogenic diets work because they inhibit appetite. Okay, well, then how do they inhibit appetite? Because then you've got two different hypotheses there. One is they just make fuel available to be burned all day long because you're not trapping your fat in your fat tissue. You have it available to use for fuel. The other is something magical that's happening in the brain. You have to differentiate that. But it's not enough to say the diet works because people eat less. Now you have to say, why aren't they hungry? Right. Okay. okay. And, and I said this in my very first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. If they, the diet works because they eat less, and why aren't they hungry? And if they don't eat less, why do they lose weight? Right. And you I, cannot get around those questions. It's like a whack-a-mole. When you whack at one place, it's going to, the only explanation that's really the simplest explanation is they lower insulin, and insulin allows fat to flow out, you know, the, with the phrase I use, which came from a Nobel laureate in 19, she hadn't won the Nobel Prize then, but this negative stimulus of insulin deficiency. If the fat cells are sensitive to insulin, they lower insulin enough, fat's going to come out of the fat cells and it's going to be burned. And so the, the fat cells are sort of waiting to see that no insulin signal. It's like the green light for them is we got insulin low and now they right. can dump their fat and you can burn the fat and the body works the way it's supposed to work. Yeah. I think that's a, a great point about just sort of the scientific curiosity to keep asking why rather than just sort of pick a, pick a reason that fits your bias and, and then kind of run with that as, as to reason why. Now that we're having a, a pretty, a big surge of, of science and literature sort of supporting low carb diets, a lot of it comes down to this question of sustainability, which you talk a lot about in the book, but sort of how the message is crafted for sustainability. Like some of these studies, like the diet fit study that says, okay, we're going to start you on a very low carb diet for the first 
I forget, like six weeks, I think it was. And then after that, we're going to have you add back carbs because we know you can't sustain that level of carb restriction for that long. Or that's the way sort of the Atkins program was set up, an initial keto diet, and then you add carbs in, sort of like setting up from the beginning that it's not sustainable. So so what do you think about just how we counteract that message? Because if someone starts a diet thinking it's not sustainable, it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, that, yeah, and if they start thinking that it's some kind of magical diet that they could go on and then <clears throat> they'd lose the weight and then somehow go back to the way they've been eating and keep the weight off. So, And this is one of the misconceptions that I find really silly and that I, I, you know, it strikes me as bizarre that I have to clear up and that needs to be cleared up in 2020. But the idea is, you know, diets work when they remove the cause of the problem. Okay. And I use a very simplistic, banal example, which is when I was a kid, I had a corn allergy. I still have a corn allergy, but I couldn't eat any food with corn in it without having serious gastrointestinal problems. And my, I was always, you know, my stomach always hurt. And so my mother drags me off to the allergist. They run allergy tests. They say, hey, kid, you're allergic to corn. Don't eat these foods. And I never eat these foods again. I mean, again, I, or when I do, I get GI problems even 55 years later, and I know what the cause of them are. Right. It's like, OK, um, I miss popcorn. I miss corn on the cob when people sit down to dinner and they have spring corn is there. And I look at it and I finally I'll say, OK, I look, I'm going to have a bite and I'm going to have GI issues, but I'm, I'm going to deal with it. But the idea is it works when you remove the problem. If you think the problem is too many calories, the diet works when you eat fewer calories. If you think the problem is carbs. So you remove it. And the, the message should be, and I thought about this with diet fits, and I would like, you know, again, my nonprofit helped fund that study. Um, we didn't know about the way they were encouraging people to eat carbs. It wasn't like if you're having trouble with sustainability, right? add carbs back. It's we are afraid you are going to have trouble in the yes. future add carbs back now. And the story I tell in the book is I was at a diabetes conference in Aspen, Colorado, and I'm talking to a young woman who had been a subject in that study. She had been a student at Stanford, and she had been always obese, uh, suffering, you know, struggling with obesity, and she was 240 pounds. And she was randomized into the low-carb arm. There's a low-carb arm and a low-fat arm, and those, that's another story. So in the first six weeks, she loses 30 pounds, strict adherence to carbohydrate restriction. And then they recommend that she add carbs back, healthy carbs, so berries. So she adds berries back at six weeks, and then, or three months, excuse me. In the next three months, she loses five pounds. So she goes from losing 30 pounds in the first three months to five in the second. At the six-month point, they encourage her again to add healthy carbs back. And now she never loses another pound. Mm -hmm. So to this woman, the diet didn't work all that well for her because she only lost 35 pounds out of 240. And the point I was making is had she remained strict, she might have found that instead of only losing 30 pounds in three months, she might have lost you know, 90 pounds in a year. She might have gone from 240 to 150. I, I don't know. We don't know. Maybe she would have peaked at 
30 pound weight loss anyway. But yeah. if she had lost another 50 pounds, she might have decided that a life without blueberries and healthy carbs was with it because she gets to be relatively lean and healthy for the first time in her life. She was healthy anyway. Now she gets to be lean. Right. And in a way, that that's almost, though, a backward success story because she didn't put back on the initial weight that she lost. And the other thing clinicians have to realize is when you start to liberalize the carbs, it can be a slippery slope because there are cravings. You know, the sugar, the even the sugar in fruits and healthy carbs can trigger other cravings. So she was fortunate that she could add those carbs and stay at those carbs and not start adding more and more and more. And that's Although the other in part. in all honesty, I never asked her how much she weighed when I was talking to her, it was uh, about two years after the end of the study. So she might have drifted back to 240. Okay. The, uh, and that's, and of course that's the problem. Cause then you think, well, I tried carbohydrate restriction and it didn't work. It didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And the point is she never really gave it a try. And so I always wondered that, look, the message, and I hammer on this in the book, we talked about ketogenic diets and ketosis and satiety and hunger, but the message ultimately is, you know, are carbohydrates fattening or not? Because if carbohydrates are fattening, then those of us who fatten easily can't eat them. And that's it. That's it. Just like I can't eat corn because I get gastrointestinal distress, I can't eat carbohydrates. And then when I talk to people about it, that's my message. They say, what diet are you on? Why? I don't eat sugar, starches, and grains, because they make me fat and they make me hungry. Right. You know, together, it's, those two go together. Right. And, but it's worth recognizing that it's not a universal phenomenon. And I think that's sort of where some of the critics would say, see, here are some examples where that's not the case. So it must not be true. When the people on keto might say, well, here it works, so it must be true, but it's not necessarily true for everyone. You see people in the blue zones, you see Katavans, or, you know, you can pick your example where people are eating a high carb diet and are metabolically healthy, but that's very different from our current society and the way we eat carbohydrates in our current society. Well, and that's the thing. So it's, um, there's a couple of issues there too, we can unpack. One is clearly the world is full of people who can tolerate high carb diets. The question is, is the world full of people who can tolerate standard American diets? And we don't actually have any evidence that that's the case <laughs> because as populations become westernized, which includes, you know, primarily the addition of like refined, highly refined grains and sugars and sugary beverages, like the Coca-Cola effect, you know, um, those populations get obese and diabetic. And then once you're there, how do you fix them? How do you fix right. us? Because we're very different, a population that's been consuming high sugar, high processed grain, maybe high vegetable oils, I'm a little more agnostic about that, for a century, is a very different population. Like each child who's born is born physiologically different than the Catavans with their sweet potatoes. So it's sort of, you know, again, there's a lot of sloppy thinking and we're always in the position of saying one reason I wrote another book is because it's sort of my old books are four and nine years old and we haven't won yet we, you know so you have to keep repeating the arguments and clarifying the arguments and seeing how people are misconceiving them I thought of you know dedicating this book to some of my most outspoken critics so because I'm basically <laughs> writing to them this is I'm not saying this, I'm saying that. I'm not saying everyone should eat a ketogenic diet, but I'm saying to everyone who fattens easily, the link to diet goes through insulin 
and insulin is responding primarily to carbohydrate content. So it's a different way, you know. I think yeah. of um, uh, every time I wrote a, a piece on uh, for the Nature or the British Medical Journal, which I've done on this different way, thinking about obesity as a uh, fat accumulation disorder instead of an energy balance disorder. There's a this young neurologist. Uh, neuroscientist in Seattle with whom I had a fiasco of a debate on the Joe Rogan show who would write an article saying, you know, Taub, he would write a letter saying, Taub says obesity researchers don't think in terms of hormones. And we do. I mean, look at leptin. And so in this book, I'm saying, look, first of all, we misconceived leptin. I don't get into that, but that's a problem. And then second of all, we're talking about is hormones that regulate fat accumulation, not hormones and fat metabolism, not hormones that might be regulating, you know, hunger and eating behavior, even though yeah. I think they're all hopelessly linked, but it's a different paradigm. Right. And it shows you the paradigm, like so much research now is being done on leptin to say, well, what if we had a drug that could affect leptin? Then we can eat however we want and not be hungry, as opposed to why don't we find a diet that just makes us less hungry so we don't have to worry as much about leptin? You know, it's funny. I'm working on this book on diabetes. And the diabetes story is interesting. I'm sure you know it pretty well, but it's, it's until insulin came along. Basically, it was a, it was a low carb, high fat ketogenic diet. That's what right. you got. So they called it an animal diet because it was animal products and green vegetables. And you actually boiled the green vegetables three times to get all the carbs out of them. Um, so, and preferably fatty animal food, not lean animal food, no milk, because that had lactose in it. So that was that was a treatment. Um, and then they get insulin, and you start giving insulin, and now you need to balance the insulin with carbohydrates, because hypoglycemia doesn't actually exist until you have insulin therapy. There's no right. such thing as hypoglycemia until actually Banting and Best, who invented insulin, uh, create the first case of hypoglycemia while they're testing their experimental insulin on one of their dog models. So they get like the dog starts shaking and heart is palpitating and he's sweating and, you know, um, so now you need to give carbs. But then the idea is they have all these different theories now about how to deal with diabetes in order to control blood sugar. And then once we start giving insulin through injection, so we're not even not the pancreas pumping out insulin and inhibiting glucagon and doing all the things that it does when it's the insulin's going straight into the liver, you're injecting the insulin into the circulation. Um, there's this really incredibly sort of remarkably complex homeostatic system. And what people try to do is say, if we just add this drug or this device or this diet, we can fix the system rather than remove the problem that's dysregulating it. And what's right. interesting is going even back to the pre-insulin era, they, they would say, look, you know, we know people can survive on these animal diets because the Inuit do it and the uh, Argentine cowboys do it. <laughs> and, you know, and so the very same arguments we've been having today, but it's like, and there are animal studies showing that if you just remove the carbohydrates and the diabetic rats, they appear to be healthy rats because their bodies work perfectly fine. The homeostasis works when you remove the cause of the problem right rather than try to keep the cause but add other 
you know, monotherapies on top of it to try and deal with all the side effects you get because you haven't removed the cause. Right. And that also sort of brings back the another concept about sustainability is like, do you think it's, do you think it's healthy? And if we're taught that it's not healthy, it doesn't matter what all the science, all the science says. So you talked about how eating this way, being afraid you're going to have a heart attack at any moment. I'm sure like when you were interviewing all the, all the doctors and clinicians for this book, did they have sort of similar experiences that they personally had to get over that hurdle of thinking they were going to kill themselves? And then do they have to address that with all their patients as well to get over that hurdle that you're not going to kill yourself by eating this way, even though you're sort of led to believe you might? You know, we've been, we've been indoctrinated to fear fat, to think that high fat diets are going to kill us. Um, I was just asked today as a, a promo for the, the book. Uh, there's a, a journalist at U.S. News and World Report who's writing an article about healthy fats. And he, if I could suggest a couple and why they were he healthy, fat, high fat foods, and I could suggest a couple and why they were healthy, he would include me in the article with my name in the case for keto, and I might sell three books. <laughs> So the and they, they they sent along what he had so far and it was you know avocados salmon uh, uh, extra virgin olive oil and I said to the publicist look if I say bacon and butter he's not going to use it he can't no. use it right he's a cognitive dissonance we're living in different areas in different paradigms and yet I actually believe bacon and butter are benign let's put it that way I, I don't know if you noticed i use the word benign a lot because i think yeah. there are harmful foods you know sugars refined grains for those of us who fat and easily starch and then there are foods that don't cause any harm and our body works perfectly you know i don't know if i'll live longer if i eat a lot of butter or a little butter i'm programmed to think a little butter is better but i have no idea Right. And I think it's good to use benign or neutral as, as a term. I mean, is, is really as good as you can get in most cases in nutrition. Yeah. And then our bodies will work the way they're supposed to work. Right. And, you know, ideally we'll cook, cook along for seven, whatever it is, three score years and 20 at this point. So four <laughs> score years. Um, so, you know, because the nutrition obesity community embraced beginning around 1930, this idea that obesity is an energy balance problem, that the only difference between fat people who get fat and people who stay lean is how much they eat and exercise, which is, when you think about it, again, almost insane. Um, I, I wonder, have these people ever known somebody like a child or a sibling or a relative who had a weight problem? Did they really think that the only problem with these people is that they ate too much, that their bodies weren't trying to do something differently than their bodies were. But once they embrace that, now they've got a, well, first of all, kind of a meaningless paradigm. It's tautological, and we can get into that, but it doesn't explain anything, and clearly it doesn't lead you to a cure because eating less and exercising more doesn't work. It just makes people hungry. So then they start adding layer and layer and layer of what in the philosophy of science we call epicycles so you've got an underlying theory that doesn't work and then you got to keep explaining why it doesn't work so well the diets don't work because people don't stay on the diets and the diets that do work are the people who stay on them and you know yeah you won't really lose any weight by exercising but maybe if you exercise an hour and a half a day you'll maintain your weight loss 
even though who has time to exercise an hour and a half a day? <laughs> Be nice. Be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so in one of the other topics you bring up in the book is, is this concept of a well-formulated ketogenic diet. And I'm quoting Steve Finney for that. But if there's a well-formulated ketogenic diet, it seems to imply that there is a poorly formulated ketogenic diet. So again, just saying reducing the carbs works, there's more nuance there as well, right? So there you can do it properly or improperly, just like healthy fats implies there's unhealthy fats, although there's a big argument for that. So how would you describe well-formulated versus poorly formulated ketogenic diets? A well-formulated ketogenic diet is more or less rigid abstinence to the carbohydrate-rich foods and then replaces those calories with healthy fats, which are naturally occurring fats that we've been consuming for thousands to millions of years as a species. Um, the poorly formulated ketogenic diet could be a personal thing. So this is one of the things we don't actually know. Um, a, we don't know how important it is to actually be in ketosis. That's why I refer to low carbohydrate, high fat slash ketogenic diet. The idea right. is, and I come back to this over and over again, uh, it's a phrase that was used in the physiology of taste, which was written in 1825. Frenchman Antoine Briat Savarin, it has never been out of print, which I don't think many nonfiction books can claim other than the Bible. Um, and Briat Savarin said the way you lose your excess weight is more or less rigid abstinence to the starches and grains and sugars in the diet. So again, get rid of those, add back mostly fat because protein, some 60% of the amino acids in protein will get converted to glucose and that will stimulate insulin secretion. So you don't actually want a low fat diet, you want a higher fat diet. And I know even this is, um, there are physicians out there who are now advocating more protein rather than less. And I go through this, so the advantage of interviewing 120 physicians, including most of the, you know, our peers, is you get a lot of different perspectives on what well-formulated means. Ultimately, it means you've gotten healthy and you've gotten relatively lean. So the effects tell you you're doing it right. Uh, you have energy, your head is clear, and if it, you're, the, you're sleeping well. And if you're not, you want to start experimenting with how to modulate the diet or the components in the diet to see what works and what doesn't. Maybe if you're not losing enough weight, maybe you're not getting enough. Maybe you're eating your protein too lean. So maybe you need more fat and less protein. Right. Or maybe you're eating uh, too little protein. Ted Naiman would say you need more protein and less fat. Right. I, I think that's a great point, though, because it points out that there isn't one keto diet. And and that's sort of the point I, I was hoping to make here. And you made that very well, that there isn't one keto diet and there are lots of variations. And for, for you know, the, the other concept of protein, how much protein, like what we consider moderate protein, other people think as high protein and it's just the label you put on it. Um, but if you're getting, you know, 20 to 30% of your calories as protein, the clinical trials show there's really no me clinical meaningful 
um, response to your blood sugar and your insulin levels in that level for most people. Now, if you're eating more than 30% or, you know, more than maybe 150 grams and you're insulin resistant and obese, okay, maybe that's going to be an issue, but that gets boiled down to make sure you have low protein. Well, well, you know, so for some people that that's not going to work and the terminology can be confusing and the same for high fat, like, you know, for some people, 40% of their calories is high fat, but that's probably not going to be enough on a keto diet. And for other people, you can overeat fat because in your body's Yeah, it also means if it's 40% of the calories are fat, that leaves 60% to split between protein and carb. Right. So you're either getting too much carbs or you're getting too much protein or you are eating so few calories that you're going to be hungry all the time. So people right. often... So there's two places in the book I address this because you raise one. My favorite, one of the things I did at the end, again, the advantage of interviewing so many physicians, and you see this getting to do these podcasts, is we have some really smart friends out there and allies. And they have wonderful ways to think about this and to phrase this. And so there's a, at the end, I, I go through sort of the major, like how to think about how to eat a low-carb, high-fat diet, how to think about how to eat if you're overweight, obese, diabetic, um, how to approach the problem. And I use uh, quotes from various of our peers out there that I thought really did the best job of capturing it. My favorite one is was from Kerry Doulas, who's a spine surgeon. She's a, a spine surgeon who used to work at the Cleveland Clinic. She now has her own practice in Ohio. She's got type 1 diabetes herself. She said she used to weigh 300 pounds. So there's no way in the world this should be a healthy woman. And yet she has her diabetes and her obesity under control. And she eats a vegan ketogenic diet. And the reason she does is because she slowly realized that her body doesn't tolerate animal products. So the fewer she consumes, the better she feels. And the quote, the chapter, the section starts off with a quote from her, which is, it's not a religion, it's just about how I feel. It's not a religion, you know, it's about, and I play off Carrie with Georgia Eads, who's a psychologist who works in Western Massachusetts now. She used to be at Harvard. Um, Georgia slowly became a carnivore, and she eats a carnivore ketogenic diet because her body can't tolerate animal products. I mean, vegetable mat. Right, right. So it's sort of you've got two people who are both eating ketogenic diets. One is eating all animal products. The other is eating all, all plants. They're completely in alignment about what they believe, and right. they do it because that's what their body will tolerate. So they're both eating well-formulated ketogenic diets, even though they're entirely different well-formulated ketogenic diets. And as Georgia said, it's just not a religion. It's about how you feel. I don't, right. like in an ideal world, I would love to be able to be happy and healthy not eating animals. You know, I understand the argument of the vegetarians and the vegans, the ethical arguments, and I sympathize with them, but I don't think I can be healthy doing that. And I'm pretty damn sure I can't be happy, even though I realize that my eating habits probably don't make the animals all that happy. I think that's a good perspective and a good way to think about it, for sure. Yeah. One of the other phenomena is another quote in there, um, Ken Berry, who said, this isn't what you're going to do. This is what you're going to become. Right. And the idea is eating healthy requires, it's about the most fundamental thing you can do in life. I mean, you've got your relationships and your children and your jobs and sustaining yourself is 
at the heart of all of that. Fueling your body allows all of that to happen, and it should take, it shouldn't be easy. It shouldn't be something you do, you know, without a lot of thought. You should put a lot of thought into it. And if you, another quote from uh, Susan Wolver, uh associate professor at, I think it was Virginia Commonwealth University, said it takes practice. Like everything else, the more you do it, the, you know, you think about it, you read about how to do it. Well, just if you were a locovore or an omnivore, Michael Pollan-like omnivore, you were just a foodie, you know, you would put an awful lot of work into thinking about what you were eating. Vegetarians and vegans put an enormous amount of work into thinking about what they're eating. They do. Yeah, and I, I like that perspective in the book about how there are different ways to do it, but yet there are still underlying principles that to adhere to. And that's why at Diet Doctor, we say, you know, limit your carbohydrates, prioritize your protein, and then you add fat for satiety and taste because fat makes the meals more enjoyable. And, and you know, that can be extra calories that you add to stay so you're not hungry or you take away so you burn more of your own fat. So I, I really like that message in the book. Um, now, one of the other things, though, is that you said, in the book, you say it's not doing keto. It's understanding how to eat correctly for your weight and health and in a way that works with your physiology. And I really like the way you worded that. But yet the title is The Case for Keto. And I, I, my guess is the publishers didn't want the title, Understanding How to Eat Correctly for Your Weight and Your Health and, and How to Work with Your Physiology. It's not as quite as gripping of a title. But, but the point I'm trying to make here, though, is the word keto in the title is a polarizing word. And I'm trying to think, you know, back to when Dr. Atkins was doing this and back when when you sort of, um, I guess you could say, reignited the fire of keto back in 2002 with your Big Fat Lie article and then Good Calories, Bad Calories. I, I'm not as aware of what the atmosphere was like in terms of polarization then, but it certainly seems to be incredibly polarizing now, especially with the rise of social media. So I guess I just want to get your perspective. What is life like now in terms of the battle and the and the polarization? I can't think of a much better word now versus what it was then. Okay. So first of all, I want to say you almost got it. The original title of this book, well, first I wanted to call it In Praise of Bad Diets. Okay, because I it, <laughs> I had this revelation when I was being interviewed for a BBC documentary. They never used my spot, and I'll tell you why. Because they wanted, they had recruited me because I'd written the only sort of history of obesity and nutrition science, and they knew that, and they wanted me to answer the question: Why do so many people read fad diet books? Why are the books so popular? Why are there so many fad diet book doctors? And the interviewer was this, you know, uh, University of Cambridge or Oxford, I forget which, a geneticist who studies like the genes related to obesity. And I was thinking about, they asked this question, I'm going, Jesus, it, there's so many fad diets because the conventional wisdom doesn't work. Yeah. You know, the, you get told to eat less and exercise more and eat low fat diets and mostly plants and it doesn't make anyone thinner. So those of us who struggle with our weight look for alternative to something else to try and the people who are promoting something else are by definition bad diets. But I knew my editors would never go for in praise of bad diets and then I would have to say in praise of some fad diets because some I think are clearly insane and dangerous. So the next title, which my wife suggested, was how to think about how to eat. Right. And that was, that was the working title until about this time last year. Mm -hmm. And then we realized that David Katz and Mark Bittman, two of the greatest 
promoters of the sort of conventional healthy diet, lean, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, legumes, like tiny little pieces of meat. They had a book coming out in March called How to Eat. Yeah. And mine was going to come out in April called How to Think About How to Eat. And this clearly wouldn't work. Um, so they suggested the publishers that I had written a case against sugar. So they liked the case for keto. Um, it kind of gave me the willies, but um, I realized I've been making the case for keto since a 2002 New York Times Magazine article, one way or the other, and I might as well live up to it. What I don't like about it is probably what you live up to. It's not just that keto is polarizing, but it's something of a faddish term. I was thinking, I don't even know when it became keto. It used to be Atkins. Right. Okay, but you couldn't, if you were going to write another book advocating for the Atkins diet, you couldn't call it the Atkins diet. So then it became, you had to call it something else. So somewhere in the last six, seven, eight years, it became keto. And it's likely to morph again in the next 10 years. So by 2030, I don't know what it'll be called. Maybe we'll go back to the animal diet that it was 100 years ago. Who knows? Although then you can't have a vegan version of it. When I started this, it was Atkins, and Atkins was incredibly polarizing. Um, when I wrote Good Calories, Bad Calories, it was still Atkins, but Atkins was a ketogenic diet. I actually have a friend out here in Oakland who's been working on a book on the ketogenic diet for um, epilepsy, on the history and the science, and he never actually thought of Atkins as a ketogenic diet. And I had to give him a copy, one of my copies of the original Atkins, and say, well, the reason he got pilloried was because he was advocating a ketogenic diet when physicians still thought of ketones as, you know, keto diabetic ketoacidosis and deadly. Um, so, yeah, today there are a lot of changes, and I talked about this in the book. Again, I said, you know, when I wrote Why We Get Fat, I found a dozen physicians I could interview who had clinical experience prescribing these diets. Uh, for this book, I interviewed 120, and I'm sure I could have found... A lot more. Thousands or tens of thousands. Um, my estimate that there are at least a few tens of thousands is based on the fact that there's a Facebook group in Canada for women physicians eating low-carb, high-fat diets, and there are 4,000 women physicians on that Facebook group. Wow. Just on one Facebook group in Canada. That's amazing. And so I'm assuming maybe 4,000 men as physicians as well. Now we got 8,000 in Canada and we haven't even gone to the United States where there's an order of magnitude more physicians. So um, the world has changed, but we're up against the very powerful vegan vegetarian movement that, that argues that, you know, the, well, it's interesting, the, the primary problem with modern diets is the meat, the animal product yeah. in them. Um, although they admit that a healthy vegan or vegetarian diet is a diet that's also absent sugar and refined grains. But, um, and because of the, their ethical arguments and the environmental issues, which I'm not sure what to make of, I, I, they're certainly serious and need to be considered, but I'm not the, the you know, I'm sure the science is as flawed there as it is in the <laughs> nutrition world. Oh, yeah. um, so there's a very powerful movement pushing towards mostly plants. A lot of the journalists, papers, you know, the New York Times is often advocating for mostly plant diets for environmental reasons. So here you are, here you are a journalist, not a physician, not a scientist, countering that argument. 
So you sort of paint a target on your chest, uh, certainly on, on social media, but sort of that's what we've sort of proven that we need is sort of someone from the outside looking in to say, well, hang on a second, this might not be right, whether it's an engineer, whether it's a journalist. But now, now that you've had that target for so long and you're getting all slings and arrows all over social media and Twitter, like, what is your thought about just the current state of, of nutritional warfare and nutritional social media? And, and, you know, is there some good to it? Is it all negative attacking? Where can we go? How do we improve it? I mean, that's a huge topic in and of itself, but I'd love to just get sort of like your, your opinions on that. Okay. I try not to look at Twitter because <laughs> whenever I do, I, it's, it's, it brings out the worst in humanity. And there's yeah. always somebody out there who's willing to say something that I wish I hadn't read. Although my favorite at this point was, uh, my wife is, a, is an author and she's an Instagram page. She wrote a wonderful novel called There Must Be a Word for That. I recommend everyone reading it. Um, so she gets a comment on our Instagram page from someone who says, yeah, and I hear the Pearl Girl is married to Gary Taubes. Can you imagine being married to that? Oh my God. <laughs> who says that? Not even to him. And my wife said she was being funny. It's like that. You're always telling people not to eat carbohydrates. I said, I'm not. I'm saying if you're worried about your weight, if you're trying to control your weight, stop screwing around and fix it the correct way. Don't try to fix it by eating a mostly plant diet or, a, you know. Um, anyway, the, it's just, um, it's a shame that you have to get your diet advice from journalists or websites or anything else, but people are getting the right advice from their physicians now as this message spreads. Not enough of them, but some of them. Um, the key here is you can try it for yourself. So, you know, if a vegan diet works and you can eat a, a well-formulated vegan diet and you're not getting, you know, vitamin and mineral deficiencies and you feel good and you're healthy, and then I'm all for it. And the same with a vegetarian or a pescatarian or fruitarian. I mean, again, those of us who struggle with our weight tend to try a lot of different things. Right. Many of the physicians I interviewed had gone through periods where they were vegans and periods where they were vegetarians. I spent 10 years eating a low-fat, mostly plant diet. But when I switched, I got healthier quickly. And you could see it happen. This is the thing. Yeah. You, could, you don't... You know, and this is the point that Martin Andre made, this physician from uh, Vancouver, whom I interviewed, the, the idea that um, physicians have been taught to prescribe diet by hypothesis. Say, so a hypothesis be a low-fat diet or mostly plant diet or a, you know, high PUFA diet that it, you'll live longer and it'll reduce your risk of heart disease. But you have no idea if it's really going to work. Because you don't actually see any meaningful changes other than maybe your LDL goes down or your TMAO goes down or something when you switch. But you don't feel different. You don't look different. Your weight, for the most part, doesn't change a hell of a lot unless you're willing to starve yourself. So the alternative is you try the low-carb, high-fat diet, and eventually you might go through, again, people cycled through the vegan diet, the vegetarian diet. They tried this. Many of these people were fanatic exercises. Some of the people I interviewed were world-class athletes, Olympic athletes who were physicians. Um, eventually, they got to the diet that physiologically makes sense, which is remove the carbs, and their, their weight problems went away, and their blood sugar came under control, and their blood pressure came. They, everything 
worked properly when they did this. So you can try everything. And my fear is people who will try sort of vegetarian or vegan diets and get a little bit healthier because they're not consuming, you know, the sugary crap that they were consuming when they ate the standard American diet. And they'll never realize that they could do much better. Yeah. That they, that they're sort of, they're missing the point. And the point is this more or less rigid abstinence to carbs. Right. And that's the case for keto. It sums it up very nicely. Yeah, as as does the book. I think it walks walks through very well, sort of where the misconceptions are, and and makes a very good case for keto. And again, not necessary for everybody, but for the right person, it's going to do great. So I assume it'll be, uh, it's available wherever books are sold. And uh, how can people learn more about it and you? Where would you direct them to go? Yeah. Okay. So wherever books are sold, we don't know where books will be sold <laughs> anymore. Uh, if you have an independent <laughs> bookstore. By all means, please. That's still open and still selling books. By all means, please. Uh, it'll, you know, it's on Amazon. It comes out December 29th. I am going to make the first chapter available on my website shortly, but I guess this will come out in a, after that happens. So, uh, website is GaryTalbs.com. I think it's an important book. I know we all do. Authors always think their books are important, but, um, Otherwise you wouldn't write it, but I, otherwise you wouldn't write it. <laughs> the other, well, the other thing I want to do is I wanted to write, I do want people to have a book they can give to their doctors. Yes. You know, and say, look, you're against me doing this. I want to try this and you're against me doing it. Well, here's why I find this compelling. So right. if you take your medical degree seriously, spend, you know, a few hours and read this book and then go to dietdoctor.com and look at their videos and then tell me that you then then support me through this. You know, let's give it a try. I could be your test case and let's see what happens. And meanwhile, you can test my lipids and you could, you know, we could, I could see you regularly so we can make sure this isn't doing harm. And, um, yeah. you know, you need that kind of well, you need the book you can give to your siblings who don't listen to you, who say, I'm not going to do that keto shit. It's so faddish. Well, you're not going to do the keto shit. Try the case for keto and let him make the case. And if you still think it's not worth trying, then I'll back off. But I think you could be, I think, you know, you could be healthier. That's a great perspective. And I hope people use this book in exactly that way. So thank you. Thank you for all your work and your advocacy and for just good science and trying what works. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brad.